Joe Ledbetter, episode 140, NBA playoffs have tipped off. Would you rather win the MVP award or a team championship? I would say MVP. And it might sound narcissistic to say MVP, but the, the championship thing can be a little ambiguous. Like if I'm just a dude deep on the bench, it doesn't feel as secure as say winning an MVP. I'm going to take all the opportunities an MVP can bring to me. Because if I'm an MVP, I at least have a chance of competing for a title every year, even if I don't win a championship. I would have to agree with you in this respect. I would rather take an MVP than to be the third backup on a championship level team. I I would rather at least know that people look back at my career and know I was good at least for one season. If for nothing else, I was good. I was playing at an elite level at least one season. It would be frustrating to be in that James Harden tier. It would be frustrating to be in that Russell Westbrook tier. And if it came down to it, it would be frustrating to be in the Charles Barkley tier. But I, I think it would be better for my career and legacy to be an MVP than to be just a backup champion. Robert Ori has a great point about that where he says, of course, I would have rather have been Charles Barkley than Robert Ory. Like Charles Barkley was this incredible Hall of Fame basketball player. Of course, I would have rather been him than me who happened to win all these championships. Tough question, Slump Busters, but obviously you're sports fans. So drop below in the comments. Would you rather have been an MVP or would you rather been an NBA champion? Also, leave it in a five-star review. Without further ado, it's time for your random sports fact of the week. Wow, did you know that? Now live on the Slump Buster Podcast, Random Sports Fact of the Week. We may be talking a lot of basketball on this episode, but my sports fact of the week revolves around baseball. On Tuesday, baseball fans were robbed of watching something special. Clayton Kershaw was throwing an absolute gem against the Minnesota Twins, 21 up and 21 down. Kershaw had 13 strikeouts and the Dodgers had a seven-run lead. But Dave Roberts and the Dodgers front office decided if Clayton dare throw an 81st pitch, he would be irreparably damaged. Ultimately opting to pull him with 80 pitches in the game, the perfecto would end with a Gary Sanchez single off of reliever Alex Vesia. The troubling thing from that moment, this is not a first-time occurrence for a Roberts-managed team. In 2016, Roberts pulled Rich Hill after seven perfect innings against the Miami Marlins. Hill also threw less than 100 pitches in that game, topping out at 89 total. These pitch solos are a far cry from no-hitters of the past. Edwin Jackson holds the record for the most pitches ever thrown in a no-hitter at 149, with 70 coming in the first three innings. Curious what may be the most ever thrown in a game? It's estimated that Brooklyn Dodgers pitcher Leon Candor threw 360 pitches over the course of a 26-inning game in 1920. Clearly, analytics have devalued individual accomplishment in baseball. Since 1893, 21 pitchers have been pulled while pitching a no-hitter in the seventh inning or later. 11 of those have come just since 2014. The Slump Buster Podcast. The Slump Buster Podcast. The first quarter starts now. All righty, Kyle. So we are recording this before the final play-in game in the Eastern Conference. So we're still waiting for the result of who's going to be facing the number one seed Miami Heat. But we do have three matchups set and ready to go. We have the Boston Celtics versus the Nets, which we're going to be discussing in a bit with our expert from Locked On Nets, Adam Armbrecht. We have the Chicago Bulls versus the Milwaukee Bucks. And then we have the Toronto Raptors going against the Philadelphia 76ers. I guess out of the two that we can focus on, 
one? Which one interests you the most? I know everyone's interested by Toronto and Philadelphia, and I think that series might be slightly closer. I feel like we can do analysis on the Heat versus Hawks and or Cavs series because it feels like uh, Miami's going to win the series, even if we don't know which team they're going to play. But I want to talk about the Milwaukee Bucks because they have been the number one team all throughout the season in the East, and yet I feel like they're like the seventh most interesting story in the NBA right now. So let's talk about the Milwaukee Bucks a little bit here, because I think that Milwaukee finds themselves in a really, really interesting place in this grand scheme of the playoffs, just because if you take away the Suns and you take away the Bucks, there's a little bit of chaos in the NBA. The parody that fans were clamoring for five years ago is here now. In a league of parody, Milwaukee is still the best team of the group. And part of that is just having Giannis. Part of that is having the same core of the team that went to the finals last year. And part of it is just recency bias on our part. But I do think Milwaukee is a really interesting team because of they're going to follow like a similar path to last year, right? If I think that Boston or the Nets will lose to Milwaukee and Milwaukee's going to just slaughter the Bulls. I'd like to put that out there. It's going to be four. And if it's not four, it's going to be five because Milwaukee gives them a game by, you know, whatever it ends up being. Milwaukee being Milwaukee, because that used to be a term was bucking it up, but then they won a championship and we stopped saying they bucked it up. But I think that Milwaukee going forward in this playoffs is really interesting because Giannis is the best player in the NBA. He's his generation superstar. He just had a 50 point championship victory game with like a flamingo leg. And we're quick to forget what might be like one of the most amazing finals performances in the history or in the modern history of the NBA. Let's say in my lifetime, let's say in my lifetime, it might be one of the greatest finals performances ever. And Giannis's greatness has kind of just become numb to people now, in part because the Bucks didn't get as many nationally televised games this year. And in part because it's been droning excellence for like four years now for Giannis. And it's nothing different. He's still just running rough shot over the league. And because the Bucks aren't the same level of storyline interesting, they kind of fade to the background a little bit. So Milwaukee is really interesting. It's also interesting that they tanked the last game of the season to avoid the Brooklyn Nets, which I think was a strategy that's more entertaining for us as basketball fans is waiting for the Milwaukee and Brooklyn series because those might be the two best teams in the East. They're probably not the two best teams in the East, but they might be the two best teams in the East. So that part's interesting. They're in the exact same spot they were last year, which is three seed. They're going to get an easy win in the first round, and then they're going to get a second round matchup against either Kevin Durant or in a weird off chance, the Boston Celtics. It'll be really interesting to watch that playoff. A weird off chance that the number two seed with the 50 plus wins actually advances to the second round. Okay. Yes. Uh, I do agree with you that this will be an easy first round series for the Bucks. If you asked me a couple months ago, I might have disagreed because the Bulls were playing well. But ever since the All-Star break, the Bulls have really struggled. DeMar DeRozan kind of came back down to earth. Their defense took a huge hit. I think it's been partially because of all these injuries they've kind of had to suffer through throughout the year. You've seen Zach Levine go in and out of the lineup. Alex Caruso go in and out of the lineup. And then, of course, Lonzo Ball isn't even in the series. Lonzo Ball is out. And I think that's going to be one of the things that impacts the Bulls the most, the fact that they don't have their guys. I think if they had a full healthy lineup, this might be a six-game series because the Bulls were playing that well when they were a healthy team. But now the Bulls that are going into this playoffs, they were, again, one of the worst teams in the NBA second half. That's why Milwaukee, who's coming in a little bit hot, should be able to steamroll them relatively easy. I, I'm going to give them a game. I'm going to say this is a five-game series for Milwaukee. Another thing is the Bulls were also a struggling team. They were also getting blown 
blown out. So it's not like they were just losing a bunch of close games. No, they're getting blown out. And that's just more discouraging if you're a Chicago fan. I think that there's some things to be excited for for Chicago moving forward. Now that you kind of seem to have a good construct around Billy Donovan's a solid coach for you. So Milwaukee's going to advance. And uh, if you want to stick tuned to see who they're going to advance to face, definitely check out our interview with Adam Armbrecht, where we give our predictions for the Nets-Boston series. On the other side of the bracket, you mentioned the possibility that the Raptors and 76ers has moved to being a closer series. And it's even a series that I think has some sneaky potential for an upset. Bible being out because of the COVID policies in Canada, who would have thought that that would have came up in the postseason? I, I know we we're talking about the Nets might have to avoid Toronto because then you would have the possibility of Kyrie being out. But now Thibel being out for the Bulls, that, that's a, definitely one of the guys that really took over for them in the second half to kind of ease that transition when James Harden got there. And then obviously you're relying on James Harden, who doesn't have exactly a postseason resume to write home about to produce for the first time in an NBA playoff situation. This is not a good matchup for the 76ers in that respect. There's also a lot of hot seat pressure on Doc Rivers heading into this one because Doc's last couple stops have been something that's uh, obviously drawn a lot of criticism, drawn a lot of ire. Ben Simmons, how that falling out happened last postseason. And then just a couple weeks ago, people were noticing how he was calling out James Harden in a press conference. If James struggles or Joel struggles, I think all I should be on Doc as opposed to the players, given Doc was kind of a weird hiring to begin with coming off his 3-1 collapse against the Denver Nuggets a couple years back in the bubble. I think I'm going to go bold here. I'm going to say Raptors in six. Spicy, bold, no mercy. Cajones pick of the week. Raptors in six. That would be quite shocking considering I, I view the Raptors as just an entire team of precious Achuas at this point. Just the entire roster is all precious Achuas, just recreated in different forms. But remember at the start of the season when we did our uh, our tier rankings and uh, I had the Bulls exactly correct. I said the Bulls exactly correct as, as the sixth seed, as the seventh seed type in the East. I said the Knicks would be decent and the Raptors would be bad. And I, I missed those two just a little bit because because I should have known that Toronto is a very, very well-run organization and the New York Knicks are far from a well-run organization. So I'm upset for missing that one. Philadelphia is going to win this series. I think that one should be without question because if you're picking stars it. in the series. It's yeah. not just about picking stars in the series. They had more stars than the Atlanta Hawks last year too. Yes, and that was a historic uh, collapse, choke job, whatever you want to call it. It was essentially, I, I say this all the time, one in 778 odds that they blew a 24-point second-half lead in Game 5 against the Hawks and a 25-point second-half lead against the Hawks in Game 7. So it was just a historic collapse where the Sixers were very clearly better than the Hawks, and they lost. That could happen again in the playoffs. It just probably won't happen to Toronto. Even though Toronto is a similarly skilled team this year to last year's Hawks team, that one just felt like a weird anomaly. But Toronto is actually pretty good. Like Toronto, as much as I think they're just a team of precious Achuas, like Fred Van Fleet is now like a bona fide all-star in the NBA. Siakam's a fine third star. They don't really have a second star, but they've kind of like filled the gaps in between with precious Achuas um, and precious Achua adjacent type players, which is like OG Ananobi. But I do think that Toronto, as long as they don't commit fouls, right, that's the big name of the game because Joel Embiid, 
dominates inside and gets to the free throw line. James Harden's game lives at the free throw line. And that's kind of the thing that he was complaining about when the rule changes kicked in this year. And he was incredibly overweight, as we found out this week, when Kevin Durant was like mesmerized by that when he showed up to camp. But Philadelphia, with those two players alone, should be able to beat Toronto. And I say should be able to beat Toronto and probably will beat Toronto. I'm going to say... I don't know, let's say five and a half. Like it'll be either five or six games to win the series, but come on, this is your flag. I mean, I don't care. I mean, I'll say, the I'll say five, care, Kyle. I'll say five then. I mean, I'll, I'll give the 76ers the series, but again, like the 76ers are incredibly thin after those two players. I think that the gap between that and Van Fleet is so significant that even if you call the Raptors a strength in numbers team or their great advantage is the coaching staff and Nick Nurse's schemes, I still think the MVP of the league should be able to take care of them relatively easily, uh, which is no disrespect to Toronto. It's just Philadelphia is a very, very good team. Although I will say smart basketball people are saying that the Philadelphia 76ers are uh, doomed for a disappointment in the postseason. And if they lose to Toronto, that would just be like, oh my gosh, we have to start questioning everything we've done at this point. But I don't think the difference between Philadelphia and Toronto is losing Seth Curry or losing Matisse Tybel. I could be wrong or losing Matisse Tybel for three possible games. But I still think that the Sixers should win that series but I'm not going to acknowledge the fact that smart basketball people are saying that this might be closer than we give them credit for, but I'm still going to take the 76ers in, uh, I'm going to say officially five and a half games, whether it's five or six feels kind of like semantics, but they should win this series. Yeah, we'll we'll put it down as five, but if it goes six, I'm going to say, hey, I I wasn't in love with five. Uh, This is a pequeño cojones pick. This is a pequeño cojones pick. Uh, You went tremendo cojones in picking the Toronto Raptors to win in the series. This is a, I'm just going to take chalk and pick the Philadelphia 76ers. I kind of wonder if Canada low-key thought that this was going to be an advantage in sports. Oh, let's, let's keep these COVID policies around for a little bit. I'm just saying, keep some stars. <laughs> well, it was a disadvantage last year. I thought the Raptors were just bad because they lost Kawhi Leonard, but it turns out they were just pissed that they had to play in Tampa for the entire season and just wanted the year to be over. Turns out that they're actually still pretty good and they just didn't like playing in Tampa for a whole season. Same thing with the Blue Jays. I'm convinced the Blue Jays missed the playoffs last year just because they were playing in Buffalo for half the season. It'd be good to see a fell Aggie, Pascal Siakam. It's interesting to hear people talk about him as a third team, all NBA guy. I didn't realize where in the ranking of power forwards that Pascal really ranks, but good for Spicy P. Between him, Fred Van Vliet, Barnes, I, I think the Raptors can make a little bit of noise and do an upset in the first round series. I'm sad I mentioned, I forgot to mention Scotty Barnes. Like he's not going to win rookie of the year because of how good Mobley's been, but Scotty Barnes was awesome. And I was laughing at that pick when he got drafted because that was 100% supposed to be Jalen Suggs. And now Jalen Suggs has gotten beat out by Cole Anthony in Orlando. So the, the Raptors were smarter than me, which is a something we've been saying for the past six to seven years in Toronto is the Raptors are really well run as an organization. Yes, we got to give some apologies to that random fan in the comments that was pissed after your tier ranking video came out. You realize yeah. how aggressive Toronto fans would be. I thought Canadians will be chill. Canadians don't mind. You could say they're tanking and they'll be okay. No, we actually got some pushback. I didn't say they were tanking. I said they were bad. You said said they they were were tanking. I can review the tape. Review the tape. (laughs) 
<laughs> wow. Uh, okay, that was that's just bad on my part then. If they won 48 games, I just I just missed on them. I just straight missed on Toronto. So maybe I'll miss on them again by saying they're going to get smacked out of the first round by Philadelphia. I feel like you're literally the bulletin board material that they need. Yeah. I, I, hopefully I can give Canada and all of their precious Achuas some uh, some beautiful bulletin board material because they also have Malachi Flynn, San Diego State Aztec. Shout out to him as well. I just picture Justin Trudeau just putting in Canadian newspapers your image and saying this guy is doubting the Raptors. This guy is who we strike back against Canada. I I love Canada. Canada has the Winnipeg Jets, I guess. (laughs) Love Canada. Those are our picks. I am going with the Raptors. Kyle is going with the 76ers. You'll have to stick around for our Boston Nets preview. Either way, we're going with Miami, but we understand whether it's the Hawks, whether it's the Cavs, it's going to be a good series. And again, sorry, Chicago. We had the Bucks going over you pretty easy, but let's move on. These guys are on fire. Let's hear more. Second quarter starts now. Not an easy game for the Nets last night. Not at all, Adam. Cavaliers start push them in those final three quarters. How are you feeling about last night's game? Yeah, I mean, listen, Doug Norrie, my co-host on the Locked On Nets podcast, we, we talked about it in the post game. While, yes, the Cavaliers certainly got it down to single digits late in that one. Over the course of this season, so often what we end up saying is like, what's your gut check feeling as you're working through the third and fourth quarter? There was never a time when I thought, oh, Brooklyn could lose this game. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't things you want to clean up coming out of it or areas of concern, but at the end of the day, when you have Kyrie playing like that, when you have Kevin Durant playing like that, you looked at that game and said it was a matter of when the Nets finished off the Cavaliers, not if. One of the interesting trends is the Cavaliers were able to outscore them over the final three quarters. It really was that hot start that the Nets got off to. Obviously, Kyrie going 12 for 12 out the gate was huge in gained them out to that such that early lead there. Do you think that that's a sustainable format for them heading through the playoffs for them to kind of have these highs and lows, these ebbs and flows in games? Yeah, I mean, you know, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving went on the court together to kind of take a your turn, my turn mentality, not just from a possession to possession basis, but also on a game to game basis. The interesting thing that we've seen specifically to Kevin Durant uh, since the James Harden trade has been that his assists per game have gone up over the last two months, 7.3, then up to 8.4, finished the season with six and a half assists per game, a career high for him. There's a new facet to Kevin Durant's game, and that goes hand in hand with the players they brought in in the James Harden trade and adding Dragic, obviously, in the buyout market. But what it affords you to do is to say, Kyrie Irving, you can get fully into your offensive scoring bag, and now Kevin Durant takes on a more multifaceted role for this team, something that he hasn't always done in his career, or even for Brooklyn. So yes, you know Kyrie Irving is one of, if not the most gifted offensive player in the NBA today. So yeah, he can get into his bag as often as he wants to. It's just going to be a question of can the players around him and Kevin Durant serve their roles to make sure you don't have some of these big runs like we saw against the Cavs. Well, so how do you feel about the Durant and Kyrie performances from yesterday and leading up to the end of the season? Because obviously everyone points to the the perfect shooting night for Kyrie Irving. I thought it was great how he got to the free throw line a whole bunch in the game, which made it easy that even when the Cavs started going on runs, Brooklyn still kept the lead there. So how do you feel about the performances they had in a, you know, like a game six type of feel in the play in game? Yeah, it's funny because neither Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving are really players that look to draw contact. You know, one of the best 
attributes about Kyrie is his ability to avoid contact from the defense and have those circus finishes in and around the basket. Kevin Durant, you go inside that line there, he ends up giving you assists, rebounds. He got to the line double digits in this one. He gives you a very balanced stat sheet. One of the things down the stretch, the Nets won the last four games of the season to make sure they got that seventh seed in the play-in and had that home court advantage was that Kyrie was struggling a little bit from the field. Now, he observes Ramadan, which means fasting throughout the day and into the evening. So there's an impact there from him. There's also the ramping up and playing on a night-in, night-out basis after coming back, just 29 games played this season. So there are these little wrinkles that you're looking at and saying, can they do this every single game over the course of a series? Kevin Durant can do that. Because what Kevin Durant did in the Cavs game and what we've seen from him late in the year was, you tell me when. When do I need to step up, get to my spot, and his spot is anywhere on the court, and knock down a few shots to really put away a team? That's exactly what he did against the Cavs. Kyrie Irving, like any pure scorers, you can have some of these ups and downs. The question will become... Seth Curry, who had an absolutely quiet 34-minute performance. You didn't have Dragic, really, because he was coming back from the protocols. These are the couple of players offensively that'll just need to toe the line when Kyrie takes the first quarter to get into rhythm, when he doesn't go 12 for 12 to start a game. But these are superstar players. This is exactly what you expect them to do. We, we said in the postgame, if the Nets, and specifically Kevin Durant Kyrie Irving, didn't do exactly what they did in that game, didn't give you those performances, even if they won, you'd be saying, boy, this is a concern going into the series against Boston. Instead, they remind you how good they are and it's what gives you confidence going into this matchup with uh, the Celtics now obviously the Nets are one of the most polarizing teams I've ever seen the lowest seeded NBA team to ever win a championship was the 1995 Rockets as a six seed obviously the Nets now coming in as a seven seed yet Vegas still has them as the second best team out of the Eastern Conference uh, do you think that the Nets can basically buck this trend and win an NBA championship this season yeah, I mean, listen, I think if we're, if we're being honest, they're not a true seven seed, right? It's, it's why some teams like the Celtics were, were jockeying to try to either match up with or avoid playing them in the first round of the playoffs like the Bucs were doing as well. The 76ers wanted to specifically avoid them. The one thing it does is it makes the road that much more difficult, right? If they're going to go into this series and beat Boston, then you're going to match up against Miami or against Milwaukee or against the 76ers at some point here, right? So you're going to end up getting three of the most difficult matchups matchups in order to get yourself to the NBA finals. Do I think they can do it? Yes. Does it come down to if they have sustained health? hundred percent. Cause Seth Curry's coming off this bum ankle. He's going to have four days of rest here before the series starts. Again, Dragic got a protocols, just making sure that everybody is able to give everything that they have, which we've seen from guys like Bruce Brown, guys like Nicholas Claxton. That's what's key to say nothing of the speculation around Ben Simmons and what that would mean for their chances. But when you come into a series against Boston, started out with actually the Nets being favored before going slightly into Boston's direction, mostly because they have four home games in the series. That's, I think, indicative. Of, of where this seed is in terms of the ability to move through the playoffs. You don't see seven and eight seeds being even money or odds on favorites to win a first round matchup. So let's talk about Ben Simmons a little bit now, because according to Jeff Goodman, it looks like there's a chance Ben Simmons plays game one in Boston on it's either Saturday or Sunday. I'm not sure which day it it's is. Sunday afternoon. Yeah. If that's the case, how are you feeling about that? I think that adding Ben Simmons can't possibly be a negative. And so it should improve Brooklyn's chances in some capacity, even if we haven't seen Ben Simmons since the infamous game seven versus the Hawks at this point. Um, how are you feeling about seeing him play for the Brooklyn Nets possibly here in the first round? 
Yeah, we, we've reserved expectations around that. I mean, you can go back over the last month and a half and hear the speculation, the what could be. He's ramping up. He's on the court. He's doing one-on-one drills. He hasn't touched a basketball. He's playing five on five. His back, you know, he's getting epidurals and he's getting shots and he's not going to be able to play at all. Like all of these things have, have swung the pendulum so violently leading up to the playoffs. We don't set a high bar of saying game one, he's out there on the court. Now, if at any point, he can step on the court for Brooklyn. The first thing that you can, I think, comfortably set the expectations for are defensively. Now he's 6'11". We know he can guard every single position. That takes something off of Kevin Durant's plate. It takes an assignment at the guard spot off of Kyrie Irving's plate. And then just the defensive presence that he provides to you. So that's the first thing that I think he can automatically contribute, regardless of how much the minute shares are, whether it's 10 to 15, which I think is would be the reasonable expectation or something more than that. Offensively, and you saw a little bit of this in the Cavs game too, Bruce Brown has become an all-around player for the Brooklyn Nets over the second half of the season since the trade, essentially. And one of the things that they did was put that ball in his hands and allow him to make the secondary and third reads, find open looks for guys like Nick Clax and get it back out to the stars. That's what Ben Simmons can do. He is a table setter on the offensive end. So to say nothing about whether or not he can be running the floor on fast breaks and getting at the rim and worrying about if his shot is good or not and what happens at the foul line, he can do that at a minimum, and that will continue to open up and provide what the Nets tried to accomplish in the moves they made in the hardened trade, floor spacing and shooters around the stars to help them be as dangerous as possible. So, you know, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, Ben Simmons with Seth Curry and Goran Dragic or Bruce Brown, guys that can all shoot. That, that, that's all you want is floor spacing and opportunities. And Ben Simmons, at the very least, has proven to be a high-level defensive player and a very adept facilitator on the offensive end. I agree with you that it could help in certain respects. I mean, obviously, huge gain to the uh, Nets defense. But the last time we did see Ben Simmons – Hacka Ben was in full effect um, mm-hmm. against the Atlanta Hawks. Regardless of how ready he is, can Steve Nash afford to have him in any closing lineups? That was one of Doc Rivers' big debates in that series last year. Yeah, and I think it's interesting just because from the health standpoint, right? If he was capable of going 25, 30 minutes, well, maybe the question is a little bit bigger. That would be, that he would be a part of the death lineup for Brooklyn if everyone was 100% healthy and you would quote-unquote live with the hack event scenario. And I think the Nets could navigate around that. But because you have a player like Bruce Brown, because you see Nicholas Claxton, Andre Drummond, who also would have his issues at the foul line, as with Claxton, but you can go into, we've seen opportunities, especially when you look at Boston and you say they don't have the Time Lord available defensively. So can the Nets afford to late in games, go small ball and play Kevin Durant in the five and surround him with shooters and have Bruce Brown, who's a high defensive player as well on the court, 100%. And then you just mitigate. You know, Bruce Brown is a near 80% shooter from the free throw line. So you can keep him out there in these closing lineups, even if, Ben Simmons were to come back, you could avoid putting him into really high leverage, high pressure scenarios early on and just see where it goes from there. That's why, again, I keep coming back to when he's on the court. Great. We'll take it from there. But everything leading up to it, you just keep assessing what they have on the court and what their chances are with who they know for a fact will be playing in the series. Well, you mentioned Bruce Brown and he talked about after the game is attacking the undersized bigs of the Celtics, possibly working to their favor. And, you know, that requires having Seth Curry here and having shooters spread out across the floor. How do you feel about the matchup going into Boston, kind of the how the Nets and what their team looks like with two offensive players who can give you a bucket almost whenever they want and the rest of the team kind of built to those two players? How do you feel about that matched up against the Celtics who, like you mentioned, they don't have Robert Williams, but still one of the better defensive teams in the NBA at the very least. 
Oh, and listen, I mean, you know, Kevin Durant followed up Bruce Brown's comments with, yeah, he doesn't need to be saying that. Let's just go out and ball. Like you're trying to look across the court and say, well, there's diminished value here. You know, we can really take advantage of it. I think he labeled him as being the same type of player in Tice. And you talk about Al Horford, but they're still presenting problems for you. You know, Nicholas Claxton is a great switchable defender, but Al Horford at this stage of his career is still very capable of, of driving at the lane forcing the issue against Drummond or Claxton and maybe drawing fouls, shooting from the perimeter. So if you're looking at it from the Nets perspective, well, Nicholas Claxton can go out there, but Andre Drummond can't. So you're going to see that chess match between when Tice is on the floor and you say, well, now go bang bodies, now fight for those rebounds. So there's still issues there. Marcus Smart is one of my favorite players to watch on another team and hate watching him on another team for how tenacious he is. He's going to dig in defensively and create a few problems. But I mean, it's high level here. Jason Tatum is playing the best basketball of his career. M.A. Doku, former coach on the Brooklyn Nets staff, has has kind of reshaped this roster and their mentality of how they play basketball. So th- this is high level. Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant. What do those matchups look like on a possession to possession basis? And again, I think it comes down to how many possessions can you buy for Kevin Durant defensively where he's not taking on the Jason Tatum challenge necessarily. Doesn't mean he won't. And Kevin Durant has shown he's playing at as high a level defensively as he is offensively. But over a seven-game series, the Nets had to do everything down the stretch here to secure that playing spot. You you want to try to alleviate it. At the very least, Boston's two stars are the two younger players out of, out of this group of four, right? So you think that their legs are going to be as fresh as possible. It's going to be a good series. It really is. There's going to be challenges. I don't think that Jason Tatum is a guy you go, oh, we'll shut him down or take him away. You're going to have to live with him and what he's getting for you. And it just comes down to, to me, exposing the secondary matchups. I mentioned how good Marcus Smart is defensively. He can be streaky on the offensive end. So how the Nets choose to work those matchups, the Goran Dragic kind of secondary battles. Will they use Smart against Seth Curry to take him out of rhythm? And then can a guy like Bruce Brown continue to shoot at a high level from the perimeter as he has down the stretch? There's a lot of kind of sub battles here that are going to kind of sway on a game-to-game basis what happens. Moment of truth, Adam. What is your prediction for the series? You always default to best players in the series. And I would say that the Brooklyn Nets have the two slide Jason Tatum in between, you know, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. That's more than reasonable. I absolutely love his game, but I I just think that the Nets do, they do have the better tandem. Let's put it that way. And I think that they will get over this hump here. Um, I'm mildly comfortable saying in six, I will not be at all shocked if it takes seven on the road in Boston to get this job done because it's just Boston is too well coached of a team. They're too fundamental. And again, Brown and, and Tatum are just peaking in their careers at the perfect right moment here. This is not first round matchup from last year's playoffs. This is a different version of the Boston Celtics. It's going to be a battle and a test. And it it may just come down to how does the series start and whether or not you steal that, that road game, right? How those games play out early in this series are really going to dictate who can win, but I'm going to take the Brooklyn Nets in six or seven. Kyle, what about you? Uh, Same boat. I would say six or seven for the Nets to get it done because Jason Tatum can get you at least one game. That is very much a guarantee there. Jason Tatum will get you one game in the series. I don't know which game, but he'll have a 45 pointer and he can by himself beat the Brooklyn Nets, even on a good night from Kevin Durant. So you can have that working in your favor. Brooklyn, same case, like having Kevin Durant changes everything in the series and that ability to give you a bucket whenever you need a bucket. Like no 
disrespect to Jason Tatum, like he does some of that too. It's just another level when we're talking about Kevin Durant, when you literally cannot guard Kevin Durant. We've been seeing that across like 10 to 11 years of basketball. He's just too long, too tall, and maybe one of the best scorers in the history of the NBA, if not the best scorer in the NBA, at least that I've seen in my lifetime. So Props to Kevin Durant there. And by the way, I was throwing this extra stat because I was looking at it uh, as the season was winding down. Kevin Durant went for his third highest career point total, just under 30. He went for his fourth highest field goal percentage this season. He went for his fifth highest in trips to the free throw line, career high 91% there. So in his 14th NBA season, Kevin Durant is doing some of his best work of his career and peaking at the right time. So it's a big matchup. It's a fun one, though, man. It's going to be it's going to be a really good series. This is what you want to start the playoffs. All right, it's clear that I'm going to be on an island here. And yes, Kevin Durant, yes, Kyrie Irving, these guys are incredibly hard to defend. But a lot of people think that the Celtics are a smoke and mirror act when it comes to this defense. No, they are a very well-fundamental team. They always contest shots. They always keep in front. They're perfect on switching. And I think that that is going to be a big part of the series. Sometimes defending a shot against Kyrie and Kevin Durant isn't enough. You could have perfect defense on them and they'll still get their shots. But the fact that the Celtics are able to switch on guys so easily, it's going to make it hard for that third, fourth, fifth score in Brooklyn's lineup. Who's going to be that next guy that steps up? Is it going to be Seth Curry on that gimpy ankle? Is it going to be Ben Simmons coming off this injury? And then that comes into the offensive side for the Boston Celtics. Okay, Jason Tatum, who's who's on him? How's that going to work? If Ben Simmons decides to go on him coming off a back injury, that might be a big point of arrogance for the Nets to insert a guy into a playoff run. And I, I think, and not necessarily you, Adam, not necessarily you, Kyle, but I think there's a certain level of arrogance in saying, we have KD, we have Kyrie, we're just going to roll past the Celtics. The Celtics are a good team. I know this is not a traditional second for seven seed matchup, but there are reasons the Celtics wore a 50-win second seed in the Eastern Conference, and that's because they have good players up and down their lineup. Uh, yes, we can debate the order of the top four players in this series. Obviously, Kevin Durant is one. I won't dispute that. Jason Tatum, to me, is two. Kyrie, Jalen Brown. But when we start getting that fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth guy, ninth guy, tenth guy in ranking each team's rosters, I think this is where the Celtics start to pull away a little bit. And that's why it's going to be a hard-fought series. It's going to be a series that has my heart beating out of my chest most of the time. But I'm going to take my Boston Celtics in seven games. It's going to be a tight one. This is a game you could tell me was the Eastern Conference Finals, but we're going to get it in the first round, and I'm okay with it. But, Adam, thank you so much for joining us, man. If you want to follow all of Adam's content, uh, of course, at Locked On Nets. Easy enough there, at Locked On Nets. This entire week is going to be a good time to follow as, you know, there's going to be some back and forth, I'm sure. Thank you for joining us, man. Anything else you'd like to plug, pitch, throw it in here at the end. Oh, listen, you find me on Twitter. We're going to be having a great discussion on the podcast with John Carolis, uh, who obviously covers the Boston Celtics extensively. So, yeah, everything this week is gearing up for that series start on Sunday. Uh, no, man, you'll find me out there where you need me, just to, to, to you, Juju, and to Kyle, man. Appreciate coming on, having a great conversation. This is what it's about, NBA playoff basketball and just starting to find those little nooks and crannies and seeing if your team can pull it out, right? So a lot of fun. Appreciate it, guys. The Slumbuster guys are killing it. Half done. Third quarter is beginning now.
Mavs versus Utah. That's going to be a great series. Golden State versus Denver. And you have the Grizzlies versus the Timberwolves. A couple of generational talents. Three series that, again, I think I'm happy with. I, I really like this NBA playoffs. Whether it's the Eastern Conference or the Western Conference, there's a lot of good matchups. And even the possibility of who might face the Suns, even that series possibility has some potential. Let's start with the Mavericks versus Utah. That's one that kind of drew my attention from the start when we were first looking at matchups. And I, I think what it's really going to come down to, uh, Luca is coming into this matchup banged up. Half injury, and we know how dangerous those can be. Sometimes you hear calf and you kind of dismiss it. I've had a calf injury. I didn't think much of it. But you realize that's not too far away from that all-important Achilles ligament. And when that thing's gone, it, it could lead into a whole lot of disaster for an NBA player. We've seen Boogie Cousins. We saw Clay Thompson, Achilles, ACL, Achilles, ACL. Once you get in that string of injuries, it's hard to come back from. And certainly the Mavericks are going to do everything they can to make sure that Luka is in a position in which he doesn't suffer from this long term. But at the same time, they want to win some playoff series. Even the competitor in Luka says he wants to be out there for his teammates. We'll see how they manage that because I don't think the Mavericks have much depth behind Luka. Whereas I look at the Jazz, Donovan Mitchell's been amazing in the playoffs. He's averages over 33 points a game. Rudy Gobert gets shit on a lot, but Rudy Gobert is going to go in the Hall of Fame as one of the greatest all-time defenders. Guy who's consistently on the all-defensive teams and all-NBA teams at center. And then, of course, Mike Conley. Maybe a Hall of Very Good guy, but Mike Conley saw score, quality perimeter defense. Those three guys in a limited Luka, the Mavericks, they're going in as the favorites, but I think a lot of Vegas odds makers are hinging on Luka available throughout the series. What, what do you think about this one? I'm kind of torn myself. It would be wrong of us with a responsibility on this podcast. I think we have a responsibility to not give people predictions for this series because if Luca doesn't play, changes the entire outcome of the series. And right now, Luca looks like he's game to game at this point. Woj said this morning, I don't know if this counts as breaking news, but that Luca Doncic is looking doubtful to play in game one of this series, which again suggests that if he's not well enough to play, then that they're just trying to get him to like 75 or 80% in order to play. It changes the entire series because the way that Dallas was going to beat Utah was just switch Luka Doncic on Rudy Gobert every single time. Just on the perimeter, just run screen and rolls, switch Luka onto Rudy Gobert every time because remember last year in the playoffs, which was kind of the big revelation was you can just switch Rudy Gobert off the floor. If you make Rudy Gobert have to guard the perimeter, he becomes almost obsolete as a defender. And so... They have Luca, who's the ultimate perimeter weapon to go one-on-one on, one on one against Rudy Gobert. But if you take that away, you don't have the scoring threat. As much as Spencer Dinwiddie can shoot the ball, you don't have the scoring threat that Luka Doncic is. And 36% of their offense runs through Luka Doncic, which like only LeBron James, I think, had a similar yeah. percentage of usage In rate. fact, I can speak on that. Apparently, he had eighth all-time usage percentage so that kind of gives some historical context how important Luca is to this Mavericks team and over the last stretch of playoff games he too was averaging over 33 points a game for them replacing 33 points in your lineup is not an easy task think about how crazy that is though like LeBron James had the ridiculously high usage rate and the Lakers just couldn't do anything and then Luca has the high usage rate and the Mavericks won 50 games like they won 50 games almost entirely off the back of Luka Doncic and if Luca was healthy I would say 
say in another cop-out situation, this is one of those Mavericks in five and a half series or six and a half type of series. So like Mavericks winning the series against the Jazz, regardless of how many games it takes to get there is more semantics. Like maybe the series is 2-2, but the Mavericks would win the series if they have Luka Doncic. If they don't have Luka Doncic, they have no chance to beat the Utah Jazz because the Utah Jazz have Donovan Mitchell, who will give you, like you said, an average of 33 points a game in the playoffs, along with who you mentioned, Mike Conley, Jordan Clarkson. I don't think they have Bogdanovich for this series, but I could be wrong. I think Bogdanovich might be healthy, might not. I'm not 100% sure. Utah is the team that like they're consistently good enough to either make the first round or get to the second round based on matchups. Like that's just consistently who Utah has been over the past like four to five years. I think they've made six playoff appearances straight now, but one of the two of those were with Gordon Hayward, I think. So that's their team. They'll beat Dallas if they don't have Luka for say even like three games of the series. In the regular season, these teams split the season season series 2-2. This one, we kind of have to cop out. We kind of have to hedge and say, if Luka plays, I think the Mavericks win. If he doesn't, I think it's Utah. I would say even if he is in there, there is the slight possibility I could see Utah going over just because they do have more depth on their team. Like Spencer Dimwitty is fine, but he's only putting up about 16 points a game for them since he was traded over following the Kristaps Porzingis trade. I I don't think that that's going to be a difference maker if Luka has to miss significant time or certainly miss a couple games in the series. It's interesting how the Mavericks would have matched up against the Jazz had this been a straight up series. We knew who the stars were. We knew everyone is healthy going in because the Jazz are a horrible team against isolation. Well, the Mavericks are one of the best in the NBA. That alone is a perfect matchup advantage for the Mavericks going into this one. And they'll still probably play a good amount of isolation. But the problem with isolation is you have to be extremely efficient for it to really work and you lose some efficiency when you have your superstar out of your lineup. It's interesting this week too with the Frank Vogel firing. Quinn Snyder of course was talked about for the Lakers job. So this is a big season for him. This is a big postseason for him. I think when you're talked about for another team's head coaching job, it's with the assumption that you're not going to be in your current job either because they fire you or They fire you. There's not a lot of (laughs) options for Quinn Snyder to go because he's kind of topped out with the Utah Jazz for the most part. It doesn't seem like this team's a team that can win a championship this year. So most people just assume that wherever they end, whether that be the second round, maybe they get lucky and get into the Western Conference Finals. Quinn Snyder's time is going to end in Utah this season. I I think he at least has a first round series win in him. You know, I'm not going to hedge. I'm going to say Utah wins in six regardless because just knowing that Luka could miss A game, two games, I think is enough. If Utah can get the advantage and win the first two games, then that sets the series up for Donovan and Conley and Clarkson just to finish it. The Mavericks are going to do a great job of double teaming Donovan Mitchell, and that's what they did to win their last couple games against him. But that's where the other guys, the two through five guys in their lineup come in big. And I I think that's enough to put the Jazz over the Mavericks. Yeah, Utah's just got to get one of these games. And like if Luka doesn't play the first two games in Dallas, Utah's just got to get one of them and they'll be in good position because then they get three home games and five and six in Dallas with or without Luka Doncic. They'll, they'll be in a good position. There. You know, it's a real shame because if you told me going into this playoffs that Luka was fully healthy, 
I might say that the Mavericks have, I'm not picking them as a favorite by any means, but if you told me a dark horse playoff team, I mean, we've seen some dark horses over the last two playoffs. We saw the upstart Atlanta Hawks last year, and then we saw the Miami Heat two years ago. If you ask me who could be that team this year, I would say the Dallas Mavericks with Luka because this is the first time that they don't have to go against the Clippers to knock them out. Put it um, put it this way. They have as many flaws as the Grizzlies and the Warriors, right? Like we can see them advancing just as equally as we could see that Memphis and Golden State advancing deep in the playoffs. And you told me that the Suns were to blow a series. We give James Harden shit. We also have to give Chris Paul his fair share of for how he performs in the postseason. I don't give uh, either of them shit, though. That's it's a it's a constructed narrative that people have done. I don't give either of them shit, though. They have some very icky stat lines in the playoffs. It's not you can't just throw out the baby with the bathwater when we talk about their postseason legacies. But the Mavericks would have had the potential to get by that Phoenix team. I think that Phoenix team is very good. And I think that Phoenix team is ultimately going to win the Western Conference. But if Luca's healthy, one superstar just goes God mode, takes over, does a LeBron James in his prime, Dallas would have been that team. They're not that team now. And that's why I'm picking the Utah Jazz to beat them in this first round series. Uh, let's move on to another one. Let's move on to, like I said, some young guns dueling it out. You have the Timberwolves versus the Memphis Grizzlies. And Ja reportedly, so speaking of another superstar who's coming in banged up, reportedly will be fully healthy play in this first round series. That's good. I've liked the Grizzlies all year, but this Timberwolves team, when you start like comparing like the superstar talent, the high-end talent on both rosters, you start talking about Cat, you start talking about Anthony Edwards, D'Lo, pitched in well and of course that firecracker Patrick Beverly just leading that team the heart and soul of the Minnesota Timberwolves I was happy about it we talked about it a little bit pre-show I was happy that they got that first playoff appearance that play-in win it was kind of the closest we ever come to a March Madness fill in the NBA and it was cool to see the Timberwolves be able to celebrate that I'm not saying that the Grizzlies are made men going into the series. Yes, they've been very impressive throughout the entire regular season. They are a good team. You look at their record without Jaw, tells you how good of a team they are. The fact that they were 20 and three without him. And that's not an indictment of Jaw. I think that that's just a plus to the Grizzlies. That tells you how good the Grizzlies are as a team. Now they get Jaw back. And when they had Jaw, you look at how much of a scoring threat he is on a nightly basis. Some of the things he can do with the ball. I'm excited that we get to see Jaw in the postseason. That, thank God. Because I was a little worried there after the injury is this going to be one of those things that kind of matriculates throughout the postseason and again kind of like Luca, where we just don't know if he's going to be playing full capacity or not again they're saying full health if they're saying full health I'm going to trust them full health I'm going to pick the Grizzlies in seven I think this is going to be a tight series I I think that the Timberwolves have more high-end depth players even though we kind of question where Cat is on that superstar tier even though we kind of question how effective D'Lo is from time to time Anthony Edwards is still pretty young so we don't know how good he's going to turn into but those three players they've shown this year and I guess they just needed that leader in the locker room Patrick Beverly's an asshole but when he's your asshole when he's on your team type of guy that you want in that locker room that's interesting because as much as I feel like I haven't watched any Timberwolves basketball this year because I haven't at the same time it feels like if this series is going to go long it's going to be because Memphis isn't putting them away more than it is going to be the good things that the Timberwolves do because Memphis is kind of in this similar stage to Dallas where the natural progressions of a young superstar at least a team led by a young superstar and for this this baby generation right now I think it's easy to say that Luke 
Luca and Ja Morant are the two best players of their generation right now. I think you could throw Trey Young in the mix there, which I love me some Trey Young, but I don't think Trey Young is the caliber of player that those two are. You could throw Zion in the mix if he's healthy and all that stuff. But the natural progressions in like a rookie contract, because usually like Ja Morant, number two pick in the draft, Luca, number three pick in the draft. Like you generally have to be kind of bad to get one of those generational stars. And so it kind of works like you get close to the playoffs, then you get a seven game series, then you win a playoff series, then you're all of a sudden a competitor by the time you get to year four or year five of playing with the same team. And so it's just the way the NBA construct exists. So Memphis in the bubble got the play in game where they lost to Portland. Then they made it to the play in game and they beat Golden State last year. And then they got a seven game series where they got smacked by the Utah Jazz. And now they're good enough to maybe win a seven game playoff series. It's the same thing with the Mavericks, right? Like Mavericks in the bubble, six game series against the Clippers where Luca hit an amazing buzzer beater. That's making the playoffs for the first time. Then it's going seven games against the Clippers and they probably should have won last year if Luca doesn't get hurt. And then this year it's winning a playoff series. As long as Luca's healthy, they should win a playoff series and then et cetera, et cetera. So Memphis is in that place right now where they should win this series as long as they put away the Minnesota Timberwolves because the Minnesota Timberwolves, as much as I'm falling in love with this team all over again, even though I last year did multiple podcasts about how crazy this franchise is and how their general manager got fired for having an affair with someone within the organization and they dumped a coach and immediately hired his replacement who they wanted to hire in the first place, but the owner intervened and all the Jimmy Butler stuff and Andrew Wiggins and all the stuff that happened with Minnesota where the only good things that ever happened in Minnesota is when they're so bad that they just have to get good players. Because in the NBA, if you stay bad long enough, you will eventually get good things happen to you. Minnesota, Carl Anthony Towns, number one pick in the draft. Anthony Edwards, number one pick in the draft. Wiggins, number one pick in the draft. Where did they get D'Angelo Russell from? Trading the number one pick in the draft Wiggins for the former number two pick in the draft. So that's the only way good things happen to Minnesota. Can I just say, I kind of feel bad for D'Lo and his career. He has been shit on. He has just been done so dirty in this league and I'm glad that he finally seems to have found a home that respects and likes his skill set obviously you look back at his Lakers tenure and the whole snitching on Swaggy P incident that got him in trouble and then he gets traded to Brooklyn and Brooklyn they embrace him for that year they go into that playoff run and then Kyrie and KD get in sound so it's get out of here D'Lo it goes to the Warriors the Warriors are bad because everyone's hurt Katie's gone. Even when Steph is on the court, they're one of the worst defensive teams in the league. And then finally he lands in Minnesota. It's not perfect out the gate because we knew that this Minnesota Timberwolves team was lacking something. They're lacking a little bit of competitive spirit. You get a guy like Patrick Beverly that goes into the locker rooms like, what's your role? What's your role? What's your role? And everyone finds a role and D'Lo seems to find a role on this team. I'm happy for D'Lo that he seems to have somewhat of a career resurgence because he hasn't been the complete bust that people talk about him like he is no he's made an all-star team in the past and also he's only 26 years old like d'angelo russell had to go through the maturity of oh i was 19 years old and i snitched on a grown man and him cheating on his girlfriend and now that's all i'm known for and all of that stuff like he had to bounce back from that and getting outcasted by the lakers which in part the lakers were just set up to fail when he was there but yeah good for him love patrick beverly i i was telling you beforehand like his story is like a disney movie 
the way that we talk about Rudy is the way we're supposed, we should talk about Patrick Beverly, but we've all decided that because he's an instigator, we just hate him. At least the internet has decided we all hate him. This dude played in Ukraine and Russia and Greece and then gets signed to the G League. Then he's the fourth string point guard on the Rockets, third string point guard, second string, gets a contract, first string on the Rockets, traded for Chris Paul, becomes the instigator for the Clippers, gets benched by the Clippers. The Clippers say, you can't play anymore. They trade him to Memphis. He never plays for Memphis. He gets traded to Minnesota. And then he gets the game winning steal in the playoffs on his former team. Like how cool is that story? So while I'm falling in love with this incredible dumpster fire of a Minnesota Timberwolves team, Memphis should win this series. Memphis is really, really good. Even around John Morant, like you said, like Desmond Bain broke the three point record for a player under 21, or I think he broke the Grizzlies three point franchise record too, which is pretty incredible. Desmond Bain from, I think, TCU, which is weird that that's a basketball program now. But yeah, TCU, Jaron Jackson, really good. Dylan Brooks. Last year when they made that run, we thought he was the second best player on the Grizzlies. So let's not discount him. Let me say Memphis is going to go up 3-1 in the series. And after that, anything can happen. It could be, you know, maybe, maybe Minnesota steals a game five and then they get game six at home and Memphis struggles to put them away. But let's say Memphis will go up 3-1 in the series. And then after that, it's anyone's guess. Memphis will win the series, but five, six, seven games all are on the table. If you if you're making me pin me down and pick one, I'll I'll pick six and hedge my bet. But I will say the series will get to 3-1 Memphis. And after that, Minnesota has a choice whether or not to lay down or to kind of fight back and try and come back from down 3-1. Our next first round series that we will break down is a battle of the 2021 MVP finalists, Steph Curry versus Nikola Jokic. Luckily for the Warriors, kind of breaking news, I guess in the last 12 hours, it appears that Steph Curry was a full participant in their first playoff practice. Highly important because if you told me Steph was out this series, I would actually went with the Nuggets. I was leaning that way, knowing that Steph's health was one of my biggest concerns because you look at the Warriors and you look particularly in their back half of the year, they were really struggling down the stretch, not just because Steph was gone. Raymond, ever since coming back from injury, just hasn't been that same guy. Clay, since coming back from his injury, has not been Clay Thompson. So yes, you got some battle-tested, hardened veterans on this team, but without that leader, without that core central figure of Steph Curry, I don't look at the Warriors and think that they're world beaters. And I haven't looked at them as world beaters since really January. They haven't been competing at that level since January of the season. Knowing that Curry is back, I have this one as Warriors in six. I I think that's just, Nikola is going to get you a game or two. Obviously, you tell me Jamal Murray's in this matchup. You tell me Michael Porter Jr. is in that matchup. That completely changes around the way we look at these games. But Nikola just has to go solo act again. And that's unfortunate for him as he kind of hopes to try and make some noise in the postseason. You would hope that maybe by next year that you can have a Nuggets team that has all three of those dudes, all three of those guys that they drafted and have developed. Sometimes you get screwed by health, sometimes you don't. And I, I guess just when you look at the time of the injury for Jamal Murray just happened at the worst time because it's basically stolen two postseason runs from him. 
Yeah. Yeah. Denver, Denver has kind of gone all in on those players and it hasn't worked out for them. Uh, Jokic can be a free agent after next season, but I know he says he wants to stay in Denver. So that might take some of the suspense out of uh, my pipe dream of him getting traded to the Phoenix Suns this off season and forming a big three with Booker and CP3. But anyways, Denver is going to lose this series just because the matchup is really poor for them. Like if they had matched up against Utah or they had matched up against Dallas, or even if they'd matched up against Memphis, like I could make an argument that they could win the series. This is just a terrible matchup for them because as great as Jokic is, and he's the MVP of the league by far and offensive numbers and all that stuff, they don't play great defense and the Golden State Warriors, specifically, they don't play great perimeter defense. And that's a problem when you face the Golden State Warriors. I should note that the Nuggets are three and one in the regular season against the Warriors. I, I remember that a couple of these losses came when the Warriors really started to backslide down the stretch. So just some important notes to throw. So in. so when Draymond was probably injured, I'm guessing, probably changed some of the numbers there. I remember that they lost whenever we spoke to Locked on Warriors. They were coming off a loss mm-hmm. to the Denver Nuggets, and that was right around Draymond's injury. But I think Draymond was back for this most recent loss. Actually, no, no, no. March 10th. So actually the Warriors have the most recent win in the regular season series against the Nuggets. But overall, the Nuggets have dominated this matchup. You had a very low scoring game in December, 117-116 game. I believe that was the game I'm referring to. 131-124, like a week later. And then 113-102, their last game in the Warriors' favor. In terms of looking at the regular season, it's not as poor of a matchup as you're portraying here in the early going, but it, it is one that I I don't feel good. I mean, I've already picked it. I've already said I think the Warriors are going up in six. I'm just saying I don't think it's necessarily as bad a matchup as you think. I mean, at the very least, Nuggets have more size than the Warriors. Well, I think like it's one part of the game, right? So like Nuggets defense versus Warriors offense is a small part of the game. I mean, it's it's close to half of the game. Like if you're talking about it in a practical terms, yes, that is true. But, you know, the flip side is the Denver Nuggets score a lot of points. And this is the exact same argument I make for the Brooklyn Nets, right? Like this is the exact same argument I say is like, it doesn't matter if they don't play defense because Kevin Durant can play at least okay defense. And they'd have two players who can give you a bucket whenever you want. And Jokic is in that LeBron camp, like the way we talked about LeBron on the Cavs, where like he elevates the teammates around him and LeBron like carried a bunch of randos to the finals a couple times. There's just not enough offensive weapons on the Denver Nuggets around Jokic, which that won't matter. Jokic will get them a game. He might get them two games. Like Jokic is that incredible. If he was matched up against a team where their best player was, say, Donovan Mitchell, that might help them a little bit better. I think that Steph Curry is he's not the same player he once was he's not even the same player he was last year but Steph Curry still in the same way elevates the offense around him I know Wiggins has been just putrid ever since we talked to our buddy over at uh, Locked On Warriors but it still feels like the Warriors should win this series I'll say six games also I think it's just a a matter of the Nuggets just don't have enough but the Nuggets this might be the, the best matchup of like the first round in the sense that both of these teams might be top four teams in the Western Conference 
conference. I don't think any other matchup we got is like truly top four teams going up against each other. I think the only matchup you can say that in the East also is is Boston and Brooklyn. So like, I guess in terms of a matchup, this would be the second best matchup of any series once we get to this point. I just wish the Nuggets had another go-to scorer. Jokic has to do everything in the offense. And by the way, him doing everything in the offense made them the sixth highest rated offense in the league this year. Like Jokic is absolutely incredible at doing everything in the offense. He's one of the two players in the league who can actually do that. That'll keep them close. I agree with you that it's it's closer than people think. I'm going to take the Warriors just because as great as Jokic is, Golden State has some levels of answers for not him offensively. You can't stop him. You can only like slow him down offensively and like hold the ball longer. But, you know, the Warriors offense has answers for the Nuggets. The, the Warriors defense relatively has answers for the Nuggets. They have answers for everyone else except Jokic. They just, you know, obviously Clay Thompson can play a level of defense. They'll put Draymond on Aaron Gordon, who's basically like their second scoring option at this point. Maybe they'll even put Draymond on Jokic. Who knows? But I think that it's it's not going to work out super well for, for the Nuggets in terms of winning the series. I think they would have rather just match up against someone else in the first round. And now starts the final quarter. Buckle up. Buckle up. This is the Slump Buster Podcast. The Suns, from start to finish, were one of the most dominant teams in basketball, never really stopping, even while CP3 missed time later in the season. In total, the Suns won 65 games this season. My co has basically had them written in Sharpie at, at the top of his power rankings. We're staying locked in to our NBA coverage with Locked On today, as we are joined by contributor at Suns.com and Die Magazine and host of Locked On Suns, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, Brendan Clean. Brendan, how have you been enjoying the playing games while the Suns kind of lie in wait of their first round opponent? It's a little stressful. Uh, I think it's it's a weird byproduct of the play-ins where the one seed is the team that finds out last. I mean, ideally, it's it's not a great team, but you don't know who you're playing until like 48 hours before tip-off. So just been watching, enjoying like everybody else, wondering who the Suns are going to end up taking on. Well, at least we're whittling it down. We only have the two possible outcomes here. It's seeming like the Clippers are probably the favorite to get that eight seed position. Like I mentioned, the Suns won 65 games this season, coming off a season in which they made the NBA finals. They were a little bit of an upstart team this year, but bringing back a lot of that same four. What do you feel is different though about this 2022 Suns unit as opposed to the 2021 version? Yeah, first and foremost, I mean, you can talk about They didn't have a backup center really last year in the playoffs. They didn't have consistency from the bench. Some of those things have changed, but but the biggest thing is Devin Booker has taken his game to another level. I mean, the NBA is going to be decided by great players making great plays at the end of the day. And and he's, he's stepped it up. He's, he's turning the ball over at a fraction of what he was. He is making his threes, taking more threes. And he just has control over the game in a way that you kind of just have to watch to to see it with a certain level of star. Uh, those young guys who, who do it at a high level, that next step is, is always that control. And I, and I think he's flashed that. So they're deeper, a little more versatile, but their, their star is going to take them where they need to go at the end of the day. And I think he's better equipped to do that than he was a year ago. And to add on to the steps that Devin Booker has taken, he's having his most efficient scoring season this season. And that even comes as Chris Paul missed time 
for about a month, I think it was kind of in February, March time. And it's been a great run for them. So uh, how do you feel like Devin Booker's game has evolved since kind of that? I guess the, the turning point was like the, the 8-0 stretch they had in the bubble in 2020. How do you feel like his game has kind of evolved since then? Yeah, first of all, love the hat. Didn't see you on the big screen uh, until uh, until you asked the question there. Uh, Valley Sports, very, very much like to see that. No, I think uh, I think with Book, it is it really is that control because there, there, there's some of those statistical things you can point to. But if you think back to, I believe it was game three of the finals last year, he scores 40 plus points, but very little other in the way of the box score. And it felt like watching that game that what the Bucks were trying to do was basically to, to kind of coax him into scoring. I think they felt like, you know, we can give up 40, 50 to Booker, but we don't necessarily feel like he's going to play make at a high enough level to get everybody else involved we don't necessarily feel like he will take shots you know that he's maybe wanting to take we, we can kind of put him in the spots that we want him and so that game is a perfect example of I think where he was and then you take like you were just talking about some of those games where Paul missed this year that I think showed the the progress he basically played point guard I mean a cup I think three games out of the all-star break he was the starting point guard for this team he was like a 30-10 threat in all of those games they won I believe two out of the three of those games they lost the first one and he's just been able to add those other components he's, he's setting guys up better he's taking what the defense is giving him a little bit more and I think the the end of the day you're seeing a guy who looks and feels a lot more like the I'm not comparing him to Kevin Durant or Jason Tatum or those types of players because they're not exactly the same types of guys but I think he's at that level in terms of somebody you trust a lot more to be that 1A on a title team than maybe this time last year. I'd like to hear a little bit more about Mikel Bridges and Cam Johnson. They were key draft picks um, from years past, and suddenly they've developed into really good role players and kind of this run of success that Phoenix has been having. Uh, they do a great job supplementing on defense for the tandem of CP3 and Devin Booker. Uh, can you talk about their overall impact on this team? Yeah, they've grown too. I mean, you know, there's only <laughs> there's only so much you can toss into an answer when when you're asked what the difference is. So you're totally right to give some shine to those guys too. I think with Bridges, it's I mean, his defense to me is he came in at such a high floor, but obviously the defensive player of the year buzz and all that stuff is well warranted. I think he well, first of all, he's in foul trouble less often. He is is kind of able to impact the game as a team defender, playing the passing lanes, rebounding, things like that, in addition to doing what he always has done as a, as a isolation stopper, one-on-one -on -one kind of glove type of, of defender. Um, and then he's, he's scoring better. I mean, he's getting to that mid-range jumper. He's, he's super efficient there. He can attack closeouts and dunk. Um, and then, yeah, DeAndre Ayton, I mean, I think it's just been slow progress from last year. I don't know if there's one thing you can you can necessarily break down he's a little more comfortable with the ball in his hands and 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 just feels a little bit more like a sure thing um similar to what we were just talking about with booker but i think bridges is he's seen the biggest growth out of anybody in this young core this season for sure so you've been covering the suns more on a day-to-day -day basis than most people i wanted to ask you about the coaching job that monty williams has done this year because nationally he, he falls behind like Taylor Jenkins and Eric Spolstra and Ime Udoka when people talk about coach of the years this year, but they went to the finals last year, which was his second season. Third year, they have the best record in the conference. They didn't really add any pieces over the off season, at least significant pieces and, you know, improve their win total by about 10 games. So how do you feel about the coaching job Monty's done this year? 
Yeah, I mean, he should be the coach of the year, in my opinion. I, I don't I don't know what the deal is there, to be honest with you. I mean, we already saw here in, in Suns Land that he didn't get it last year when he did sort of fit that narrative of like, oh, the team that makes the big jump always gets that award, and, and he didn't get it for that. Now it's like people are, it's already old news to people a little bit. It feels like, which is funny because it's like, okay, well, you didn't reward him when it was new. Now you're not rewarding him because it's old. I don't, I don't understand. It seems like that race will go down to the wire. You're seeing a lot of Jenkins votes in addition to a lot of votes for Monty. But I mean, I think what he does as a coach is his system isn't so much of a system is, is what's funny. Um, It's more of a structure. It's more of like rules than it is sets. And so I think he's, he's able to put guys in a position to succeed who are younger, who need that sort of structure. DeAndre Ayton, I think, probably the biggest beneficiary of, of Monty's coaching of anybody on this team. But even guys like Cameron Payne, uh, who was you know overseas and, and didn't know if his NBA career was ever going to come back and comes in and it just hits the ground running with the Suns. You have Cam Johnson, who you know people had a, a lot of questions about as a, as a draft prospect when he was taken so high in the lottery by the Suns. And, and he's turned into somebody really special just using what players already have. And I think being confident in them and giving them the tools to like, hey, you know, if if that shot feels comfortable to you, take it. If you think you can play with these guys, then we'll try you out in that lineup. Like it's sort of that flexibility within the structure and and just having that structure for the guys who need it that I think has really helped. Uh, and it's also just a match made in heaven to have Chris Paul there as well. I mean, he, he kind of puts all of the, at least on the offensive end, especially puts all of it together in a way that that guys are just able to flourish. Speaking of Chris Paul, one of the biggest stories in the NBA this season was the downfall of the Lakers, how a 37-year-old LeBron James seems more content at this point to bring in his older buddies than he is to embrace younger talent. But you have a 36-year-old CP3 who is surrounded by young guys, signs that extension in Phoenix, and has really turned these guys into stars, if not superstars. Can you tell me some of the core leadership differences between CP3 and LeBron James? I can't speak too much to LeBron. Uh, I, I think what you're saying is exactly right on, though. I mean, I think he has done it a different way. And I always go back to when it comes to Chris, the season he spent in Oklahoma City. I think that was really eye-opening for him, where he didn't want to go there, but also didn't want his career to be over. So he was in a little bit of a rock and a hard place situation where it's like, how do I handle this? So he tells Sam Presti, I'm not resting on back-to-backs or any of that. No, the answer is no. I'm not going to roll over and, and treat this season like a, a waste. And he turns that team into a four seed, five seed, whatever they ended up being, and a, a, a playoff team, right? It, it's a young group, and you've seen what they've turned into without him there. I mean, yes, Dennis Schroeder also left, Stephen Adams left, but that group is, is nowhere near as competitive. And so I think that was eye-opening for him. And then he comes to Phoenix and is able to turn it on um, That in that same way. He's able to just sort of be that last missing piece that they needed. And this roster was already better than Oklahoma City. So the the heights that they've been able to reach have just been higher. But I think that leadership started there. And yeah, it is fascinating, the comparison between him and LeBron. I, I think the idea of they're both great passers, both great playmakers, both guys that people like to play with, but late in their careers, they're, they're definitely taking a different trajectory. And one of them might end up with a ring at the end of the season and the other one missed the playoffs. I mean, there's a lot of the, there's a lot that went into all that, but that's, that's kind of where we stand. It's fascinating. So last year in the finals, I remember it was around like game two or three when Drew Holiday started guarding Chris Paul and Bucks were kind of like daring them to shoot three pointers, shoot three pointers. And the phrase I kept hearing in coverage was like, the Suns don't shoot enough threes. They don't shoot enough threes. And I, it, it felt like it was 
overdrawn because of how good Devin Booker and Chris Paul are as mid-range jump shooters. And like, that's the shot you'd prefer them taking. So how do you feel about the Suns offense headed into this season in, in regards to shot selection and how they've kind of balanced their offense between obviously Aiton is the big guy who scores most of his points inside. They tried to turn him into a three-point shooter early in his career to, you know, the way that they kind of run their offense. It's really unique, right? I mean, they are a throwback team. They they take tons of mid-range shots. They don't really offensive rebound all that well. They don't get to the basket. They take some threes, but you know, in a league, the way that the league is right now, that it's, it's not a lot compared to their opponent most nights. So I think that's why I come back to Booker so much is because what happened at the end of the finals, I think kind of made it overblown how out of whack that series was. I think you see one team win four times and it feels like it was really lopsided. The bottom line is games three and four were decided by one possession. They won games one and two, and then Giannis did what Giannis did. But of course, not taking that away from them. They got it done in six games, and that's an all-time performance. But this was close, is, is what I'm saying. And so Booker being able to turn some of the pull-up mid-range shots that he had you know, maybe taken last year into threes, pull-up threes, or the confidence of Mikhail Bridges to be somebody that the defense needs to respect from all three levels or the ability of, of DeAndre Ayton to catch the ball on the roll as a, as a you know, screen roll threat and, and pass out to his opponent, spray passes out to three-point shooters or, or make the little floater that he's gotten better at. It only is going to take this team being 10, 15, 20% better to get the job done. And that's if they face as difficult of a road as they did last year. I mean, the first round's already looking like it's going to be a little easier. The, the finals, we'll see if they get there and who that is. But those little things I think will be enough. I don't think it's about taking more threes. I, I honestly don't even think it's about taking more shots at the rim, which is another, you know, like I said, thing that they've gotten criticized for. I think their shot distribution is just fine as long as they make the shots they've always made. It's just pulling the defense apart a little bit more, keeping the defense honest, more consistently and not allowing games like the one I referenced where Booker is able to go off, but not much else goes on offensively. You can't have those games anymore. And I actually believe that was game four. I think I said it was three earlier. So that uh, th that's, that's going to be the bottom line, but I think they have everything they need. I mean, they just proved it over 82 games. It's, it's just going to be about doing it again and, and doing it at a higher level. Now the phrase last dance has been thrown around a little liberally these days, ever since the documentary came out in 2020 but with the uncertainty around DeAndre Aiden, I've heard that same sentiment cast on this Phoenix Suns team. Do you believe that this is their best chance to capitalize within a title window? And are you concerned that that title window could close quickly if a guy like Aiden is no longer with this team? I think that's a big, obviously, underlying subplot with this group. I think if he were to leave, it would be, I mean, he's a restricted free agent, right? So I imagine it would be more on the Suns' terms. I don't really see a situation where, they would just not match a contract and just allow him to walk. I think you'd be talking about a trade or something like that. The team could look different. It, it is definitely an accurate way to frame this. Cam Johnson's up for an extension and, and it does start to get very expensive. That all said, all windows are, are fleeting. I think you, you run into that a lot in sports. So I can't predict the future necessarily to say I'm a hundred percent confident that they'll continue to compete for championships, but 
I don't really see a slowing down happening with Chris Paul. And until that happens, I think Booker is going to continue to get better. I think these young guys are going to continue to get better. So it might look different, but I don't have a, a reason to believe it, it will fall off in any way, even if some of those changes do happen that we talked about. Headed into the playoffs, what is the matchup that gives you the most pause for the Suns? Is it Denver, Memphis, uh, the Dallas Mavericks, maybe? I know Luka looks like he's going to be out for some time here. Golden State, which team gives gives you a pause. It's the Warriors. Yeah. Not only because I think they're just the second best team or, or maybe best team, depending on how you want to really argue it, but it's just been hard to get a gauge on them. So that's part of why it's so tough to say where they are or how they stack up. We don't know what the team looks like. Those guys, three of them haven't played at full health at all this year. And obviously the prior two either. So if there's a version of them that looks close to what we know they can all be together, I think that infrastructure is is scary and it has to terrify any team. And I also just think defensively, the versatility that they are able to put out there has always been tough for the Suns. If anybody watched the three games they played this year, right away early in the season, then on Christmas, and then there was another one right after, anyone will remember the Suns offense got bogged down. And that happens against most teams. They were they were far and away the best defense in the NBA basically until Draymond Green got hurt. So they they can turn that back on and Steph and Clay are able to score. Jordan Poole, throw him in there as well. He stepped up this year. Then yeah, that, that team is, is going to be tough. Fortunately for the Suns, that won't happen until the conference finals. And I think that's probably where this is headed and it'll be a fun series. But I, I, I do still think the Suns probably would have to be taken above them just because the uncertainty with injuries, you know, holds you back from the Warriors. Thank you, Brandon. Great insight into the best team in the Western Conference. Any obligatory plugs you got for us, man, before you head out? No, you got it all at the beginning. Thanks for having me, guys. You learned with us. You laughed with, you us. Laughed with us. Now it's time to do some deep thinking. Hashtag bust the slump with your weekly words of wisdom. Don't worry about failures. Worry about the chances you miss when you don't even try. That's a quote from Jack Canfield, who wrote the Chicken Soup for the Soul book series. Jack is right. My biggest regrets in my own life is from not taking risks a little sooner. I credit my young co-host, Kyle Ledbetter, for risking it all and putting his voice out there at such a young age. Not an easy thing to do for a lot of people. To my credit, I think I'm happy I had the courage to try it at all. But the biggest challenge may be just getting over yourself. Getting over yourself can be one of the hardest things. But those that do tend to accomplish the greatest things. I mean, Rome wasn't built in a day, but eventually you kind of have to start laying that foundation for your success down the road. Just start laying bricks today. Small accomplishments into bigger ones. If you really want to do something great, you just kind of have to risk it all sometimes. That will include a few bumpy roads. That will include failures along the way. Yeah, just keep advancing, right? That's the thing I say all the time. And every couple of years, you'll have a chance to make a calculated risk. There's a great sports comparison here, which is when you run a front office, you have to do all the little day-to-day work. And then once every two years, you're presented with an opportunity to change your fortunes as a reward for all the little bit of work that you've been given. And then as, as the great philosopher Marshall Mathers said, when you have your opportunity, one shot, one opportunity, don't miss your chance to blow and then figure it out as you go along. Eventually, your opportunities will come. You just got to lay the foundation along the way, like your quote said. Take calculated risks. It's really important in life. Don't just do risky stuff all over the place. Take calculated risks. And if
if you're taking those calculated risks, just don't end up like almost age and fail to acquire guys like Jimmy Butler, Anthony Davis, and a list of other superstars along the way. But Slump Busters, it's not much a risk to hit that subscribe button. So go ahead and do that. It's not risky at all to leave a like or leave a five-star review. In fact, it's the opposite. It is one of those good bets. So uh, at Slump Buster Podcast on IG, at Slump Buster Pod on Twitter, at Slump Buster Pod on TikTok from Juju Talk Sports and Kyle Ledbetter. Stay safe, happy and healthy, and we will see you next time.